Hi, you're listening to the Healthier Place, Healthier Future podcast. This is a series which discusses our relationship with the food environment and our health. I'm Emily Wyman, Project Officer for the Healthier Place, Healthier Future project. This week, I'm discussing with Jackie Floyd, local councillor and food activist. From the legendary effects of Florence Nightingale, Equal Food Systems and Bins, this episode covers the relationships between our societal structures, the welfare state, and most importantly, the effects that these elements have on our health. So thanks very much for coming on the show today, Jackie. And I'd just like you to paint a picture of kind of how you've got to the position that you're in um, and also the, the interests that you have. So you're a counsellor, but you have a passion for food and bins, but you've also worked in public health. Okay, how to wrap all that up in um, one go. Thank you, Emily, for inviting me. Um, so yes, I've been a counsellor now for um, three years. In the third year, we've had this lovely pandemic to deal with during that time as well. I'm retired. I'm a retired nurse of many different types of, of work. I've been a midwife. Uh, I was a housing officer for a short while and done all sorts of jobs over the years and just been a, generally a community get out there, do a sort of person. I think um, my passion for food goes back a long, long way. I was fortunate enough to be inspired by a health visitor uh, in the Greater London Council when I was having my first baby, and he's nearly 40. And I was put on to a bit of research um, to test a, a great big fat multivitamin tablet there many years ago. But within that, we got loads of information about how important it was to eat well during our pregnancy. We were growing our babies and set us off on that breastfeeding path. And that has remained with me forever. Then um, it's my husband really goes out and about dog walking. And I joined him in his litter picking when I first retired. And then you find that there's, as a counsellor, this is the way that stuff happens. It's how you you find things out about what's going on in particular streets and communities. And I think I also like to think that I'm following in Florence Nightingale's footsteps. I've gone from being a frontline hospital nurse to being something that's, somebody that's rooted in public health and place and space and how do we create healthy environments for communities. Um, yeah, that really sort of sums it up, I think. And... Um was it the the public health background um or working as a nurse that then made you want to go into being a counselor um or was it going out on those dog walks and seeing how you wanted to change the streets i th- i think it was that the going out because of generally being known and i've been a party member for for decades um i had folk um directly inviting me to to come and stand at first I was going no 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 I'm happily doing my bit and from about five different directions I had folk going come on you know you're wasting your talents you need to get in there and and stand so it was it was the two coming together I think at that particular time of life and the learning I tell you since even when I think back to that campaigning at my first election I'm I'm in a very different place now to what I was then. You, It is one of the fastest learning curves you will ever go through. And how long have you been a counsellor for? That was, it's, um, yeah, in my in my third year. 
senior third year so yeah, yeah as you said there's a steep learning curve and yeah. can you give us a little bit of glimpse of what some of these learnings are whether it is just getting out there and speaking to people um I think it's more to do with and it goes back to that Florence Nightingale but it's understanding the the history of councils and what they're there for I mean they started off with creating the sewage and the you know the healthy water and the collecting the taxes and even way before the NHS, it is understanding the the constraints and the reality and the power of our lo- our local councils and the statutory responsibilities that they have, and recognizing how much hard work goes on day in day out within those services and what eye wateringly large budgets they are. Even though they've been diminished, they are still. Um, big money and it's and they have lots of responsibility to deliver within those limited limited budgets and I'd come from the NHS that sort of talks about being short of money but somehow it always seems to come out in the wash and nobody ever really goes bankrupt but in the local government you really feel and as an elected member you feel that responsibility for managing that budget and I think that's the dichotomy that I've had to learn is I was probably like a lot of my residents who think if they um, shout at me, somehow I'll get their bit done. Whereas actually what they're doing is electing me to represent them and to make sure that those budgets are spent and decided upon within their with their interests at heart. I think it's interesting that you make parallels to to Florence Nightingale's effect. And I was actually recently listening to a podcast that talked about how she was revolutionary in hospitals by just simply through opening opening windows. And actually it caused an increased airflow and it was discussing actually how have hospitals changed, but this effect that she had. And in a way, this idea of responsibility still follows her, even though you're managing budgets, but that responsibility to actually create better spaces and places, I think, still follows through with what you're discussing right now. It it does. And the numbers thing as well, I think, um, as I got on in my career, I got into service improvement work and it is the devil is in the detail. And you you always should assess whatever services is going on in both its qualitative and quantitative way and and Florence was had had rigor in her data collection that is you know many could do with following that today it does and i think i think history comes in here again and i know we've discussed history before but actually it does we have to look at history to understand actually how can we plan for the future yes history and in context that that understanding everything that's going on in context in that and that place and space and the culture and the individuals are, that are there at that moment, how that, all that magically comes together. So health, So I think it comes back to reminding all councillors of what we're there for. It goes back to that bit of history and taking pride in their establishment long before the NHS, that the, the sewers and the water is what enabled our communities to be healthy. And that's and it's reminding my fellow colleagues that, yes, every single department that we have within our local authorities impacts upon those wider structures that influence place and space. Um, And sometimes I think um, my fellow councillors just need a little bit of a reminder of that, of how 
important and the ripple effect of what can seem to be a, a small decision in one particular department can have lot really long ripple effects of positivity or sometimes by omitting to act a small thing can can stop that ripple from from spreading out but we have we have great influence in every single department and should be joyful and relish in that opportunity so that's how I think I'll, that's how i'll be encouraging my colleagues i think and hope if they listen to this podcast they'll be thinking oh heck here she goes again <laughs> I think you've really covered actually what does it mean and the essence of what it means to be a counsellor and again just to touch upon actually these small things and I think you do a lot of them and I've seen lots of photos of you actually out and doing litter picking on the streets and getting out and speaking to people but if you just want to give a glimpse or a few for anyone who hasn't heard about what you do but um, of what actually what you do when you go out and you do litter picking and you do um, food produ production Right. Okay. I think so. I had um, a case this morning that encompasses being a counsellor and litter picking and the whole kitten caboodle. It's it's worth knowing that I am I'm recovering from COVID at the moment, so I'm not going out collecting loads of bags worth. There has been a there's been a reduction in my tally recently, but my colleagues are being you know are absolutely fine about that. So I get um. A photo this morning sent to me of a big pile in a back alley. And councillor, how terrible this is. This person needs prosecuting. <laughs> um, but that's Florence Nightingale. Don't find the devil in the detail. It comes out and it was a lovely sunny morning. So I went and knocked on the door and found a family where English wasn't their second language. Completely embarrassed because I was able to show the pile of her rubbish out the back. Um, you then end up using Google Translate and a bit of meme mowing and pointing and, you know, a COVID secure conversation on a doorstep, me with a mask on by the by the gate. But by the end of that half hour of, of chatting, that young family is now on a path to understanding what to do with their rubbish, um, finding more links with uh, children's and adult services through the uh, family connectors that we've got so as a counsellor I, I know that I was unable to link that family up with a more folk than an ordinary litter picker could um, and yes that felt real and I haven't collected a scrap but I've you know got that woman on a path of understanding where her rubbish goes and when you start getting folk looking at their rubbish boy does that lead to conversations about food and food quality and that really I, they don't so much come into the conversations that I'm having with the families there and then but they feed those conversations that I'm having with those that are forming public policy about food and going back to that nurse who took the vitamin tablet and all that knowledge that I have um, about that and I am in uh, well, I suppose I feel uncomfortable about the volume of rubbish calories that are sold to our poor families. So that's that what I see in those bins and in those back alleys fuels my political passion to keep saying to those that are in the, the realm of policy, you know, we are not doing right by our ordinary citizens because we are encouraging, you know, they be, they're having rubbish calories 
forced upon them and then that leads to all sorts of ill health and that later on and the individual in that situation will be doing the absolute best to feed their children because they are buying the the cheaper things that have you know sugar fat palm oil you know all the stuff that really we don't need because it it fills bellies and makes people happy it does and and blackburn Darwin has some some quite high levels of different health problems and also dental health so it does go back to that that council's responsibility but also looking at the food system as a whole and how it ties to health and well-being and actually what is available in the supply chains that we have and sometimes in that surrounding landscape it's not our fault personally that um, we can't buy foods we can't buy fresh fruits and vegetables no you, you will do what is best there and then with what's available in front of you and it's also recognised this demonising of the poor as well. If you are holding down two part-time jobs and your income is limited, we're in winter now and you've got to pay your fuel, you you, know, you will make decisions from what's available in front of you now. And I think that's sometimes you know, really, the difference with our, what's seen as the structures within British society, we, we forget about our pride in the welfare state that we, should embed those structures around people to enable them to make positive, good, good choices about their health, rather than this, um, I call it the the Americanization, Trumpification of stuff that it's, you know, it's everybody's responsibility that they've, you know, it's their choice to eat rubbish if they want to, and if they only, they got on their bike and all that nonsense. No, it's about understanding that the deep structures that have, so that we've allowed to just sort of come into our systems that don't make it easy. If you've really got a short, in, in, a short income to be positive about the choices that you do make. There is, of course, always individual choice. But as a, a civic citizens, we need to make sure that we look at the whole landscape and create that place and space as best possible for our residents. It's amazing what you can find out from bins. <laughs> oh, I tell you, somebody one day is going to follow me and do a PhD on what's in bins in back alleys. Uh, bin check. Bin check, yes. <laughs> and so I'm leading from that and we're talking about actually how can places and, and space actually encourage health and well-being and, and obviously it's very intrinsically related to food and how can... We actually design food back into our cities um, and into urban areas or rural areas. And can you give a few examples of actually how we're trying to tackle that in Blackburn with Darwin? Okay, so I think that the first thing, the big thing that we're just starting with now is our thorough mapping, I think. Um, And I'm quite excited about that over the next few months um, as part of our application for the bronze level of the sustain um, recognition as a sustainable town because we've done and this is with the Blackburn with Darwin Food Resilience it, it, Alliance it is, which was formed that we've sort of rebooted ourselves after COVID we've had a food alliance for for some time but I think like many of, of the general public all up down the town they see think of food resilience and think of food poverty and then food charity and real. Really, this is about um, what Sustain is trying to guide us all through, is recognising the whole system of food sustainability 
and supply and choices and to understand and with um you know brexit around the corner you know the final transition are we going to have a, a deal or no deal the knock-on effect of climate change we've known for some time that food the food supply chain is going to be really upset and i don't think there's a lot of people folk have really grasped that yet and therefore in our you know in our communities it's understand it's providing that structure and information so that folk can learn and the resilience part comes from start developing their own strategies to de deal with these big tsunami changes that are coming over the next couple of years so it's with the food resilience alliance is really moving away from that concentration of um, food charity organizations and trying to focus you know different groups attentions on that that resilience and what's coming um, at the end of the tunnel you know that little light that's rattling towards us so the mapping I'm really excited about that because it goes back to that that landscape rather than taking what's from Google because a lot of folks think now with IT that everything you need is on Google Maps it's not um, there was one of our other local um, organisations found at the beginning of COVID, even in one small area of town, there were a hundred small outlets that were providing food that were able to quickly respond, give a COVID response to their local streets. None of them were on Google. So, you know, you'll get the big high level things. We want to get a map that shows us where all the outlets are, what type, you know, have they got fresh food in them? Have they got an ATM that doesn't charge? Uh, what's the relationship with their community? Where do they get their supplies from? Are they worried about their supplies in the future? There is so much to be gleaned. But the first thing is about you know, that engaging and getting our communities to take ownership of that map. So we're going to be asking anybody and everybody, individuals, because we're constantly in some sort of lockdown in this area as well, because we're a high COVID rate. So on their individual walks, behind their keyboards, remembering what they knew about their area, what's available within 15 minutes of you and your home in the way of food supplies. So if there was Armageddon tomorrow and we just had to re rely on the systems that came into 15 minutes from where you live, what's there? And we know that we're going to get very varying stories. We've already got glimmers from one or two participants who are saying, you know, there isn't a, a, an ATM that doesn't charge within 15 minutes. There's only one of the small minor um, supermarket chains that's nearby. It doesn't necessarily sell, you know, the, the best quality of food. So the folk in that community really have greatly reduced choice from somebody else who lives nearer to town where all the major chains are, uh, including the, the bargain ones like Aldi and Lidl. And there's also 101 corner shops selling fresh veg. So... It's engaging and we'll be able to, and it's only, again, goes back to Florence Nightingale. We need to gather that data. And once we've got the data, we'll be able to guide our decisions in where we go next collectively. That's great to see and, and hear. And so the Food Resilience Alliance are going to be asking for everyone and anyone who is based in Blackburn with Darwin to actually fill in these forms online on social media. Yes, that's it. Um, we might even go as far as asking them to do a podcast there's all sorts of exciting things with with food power is involved in the uh again from sustain with the youth of, of blackburn and darwin they've been going for some time and it was really you know the darwin gets hangry team 
that went off to the House of Lords last year, they, they were a great influence on Marcus Rashford. So from, you know, Little Acorn, you never know. I'm quite excited. I just know there's going to be more young people found and encourage them to use social media and any form of technology that they're comfortable with to help us with this mapping. Uh, but then it'll be folk behind the scenes with um, the equivalent of pencil and paper, technically Excel, whatever, will be creating those those that information and mapping it out in a very meticulous, detailed, with rigour, I think it's called. It's creating a map of uh, shoe leather epidemiology, I think. That's what our director of public health called it. <laughs> Shoe yeah, leather epidemiology. I've given it, it a hashtag now. It's going to be a new science. So when they do the PhD on my bins, it'll be a shoe leather epidemiology PhD. I'm looking forward <laughs> to seeing that. <laughs> I think just to link back, actually, there's an important point to be made just to, A, about food poverty and the way that it's seen and the stigmatization of it as well, but also just the inclusion of young people's voices in this. And the food system has, I think, been a victim of actually ignoring how landscapes are designed for food, but actually how it's also, it excludes young people and it exploits young people from children to younger ages in that we'd not, we're not educated around food. Um, and actually the Darwin Gets Hungry campaign is a really good example of showing how youths are demanding a right to have better food, but also better access to yes, food. Yes, and all the way through and, and bringing that into the, the education system, which is going to be challenging. So you know that in Scandinavian countries, in, in Japan, there is this whole culture of children being involved right from reception class and you know, infant primary schools, they start school later any road. So it's like the nursery system is carried on, but they, they participate in the, in the growing, the preparing, all those skills of going outside, uh, digging, making, cooking. They are just seen as such an important part of life skill and education, which then can be built upon over the years. Instead of at the moment, we seem to be trying to do retrofit education about good food and cooking and stuff it really is um a slog <laughs> and lots of areas that need to be dealt with <laughs> i think so yeah there's a lot of work to be done and just i think quick final question but do you think learning about this can actually implementing food into our education can actually reduce inequalities in the long term of course it does it does and it's there's even simple, isn't there, bits of research about uh, giving a good breakfast, that piece of research from Blackpool, you know, they reckoned then affects two grades in education. But it's all that growing, cooking, eating, the importance of food, so a good brain is grown. Go back to that, you know, the importance of breastfeeding and the food given to women when they're, when they're pregnant and what's in utero. There is such a plethora of you know research out there that shows all that stuff impacts on the choices that you make later on the links with adverse childhood experiences so as an adult you're better able to make good decisions it's a it's a virtuous positive cycle so no yeah educating and pro providing and educating about good food and the whole system is is for me the leveler upper yeah, and without the investment in that in spaces and education, 
we're just playing lip service to levelling up. And I think this links back to actually the role and responsibility of a counsellor. And I think Blackburn, again, is another good example because you've recently just become a breastfeeding friendly yes. borough. Um, and it's also about creating the spaces for people to be able to breastfeed freely because you also support mothers in breastfeeding. And it is, it does come from, from an early age. And that's supporting a, a young mum, you know, with, they're at home at the moment. It's, you know, it's, I'm reassuring them that it's, you know what, it's okay to sit and just cuddle your baby. Boy, do we give this, I think I was probably came through that era of, you know, the superwoman you had to hold down the, the job the super education and bring up your kids and all the rest of it and it's just like no if we have a quality society we will that feminist part we will applaud and support the time that's required to nurture that relationship and that growing baby's brain all the way through it's not just the actual food that goes in through the baby's gut but it's all that link with you know the hormones of about positivity and love and relationships that have such a big impact on growing a child's brain as well. So it's it's that whole encompassing about how do we value the role of women and what they do with the next generation. I think we've covered a lot again. All of these podcasts that I do, I seem to cover so many things, but it's just talking to such interesting people that have really mixed backgrounds and it's contributed to to who you are today and actually your role as a counsellor and all of these responsibilities that you take on. Yeah. Um, and I think that's everything I've got to ask on the show today. I just want to thank you so much for coming on and giving such insightful talks. And I'm really excited to see actually what, is next for Blackburn with Darwin and also where this bin PhD <laughs> is going to go. I'm, I'm just... And the shoe leather you know, epidemiology. Yeah, I'm epidemiology. just waiting for that call for, um, you know, but they, they want to go into marine biology and things like that and I just want that call from that super studious student that says, counsellor, I've heard you have an idea for a PhD. I want to shadow you. Um because I haven't got time to write it all up. I really haven't. Folk keep saying, yeah, write a book. I haven't got time to do that. No, too too busy with my shoe leather. Too yes. busy with the bins. Yeah. <laughs> well, if anyone wants to do a PhD on bins, I know where to they contact do. Jackie. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure, Emily, and thank you so much for inviting me and giving me this opportunity to talk. I hope there haven't been too many interruptions from the family clunking in and out of the home. Um, yes, I look forward to all the great bits of work that we're, we're doing along the way. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks, Jackie. Just coming back to health and well-being, and why do you think that health and well-being is important as a counsellor and how can you actually put strategies in place that encourage other counsellors to make it a priority in their areas of work? Thank you for listening to the Healthier Place, Healthier Future podcast. Share this podcast on Twitter at Healthier Place and sign up for updates on the Food Active website.